Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. On the show today we have Matt Phelan, he's the co-founder and CEO of the Happiness Index and he's the author of Freedom to be Happy, the business case for happiness. Before we get a chance to speak with Matt, it's a Leadership Hacker News. On today's show, we explore the notion of, is crisis caused by communication? And the reason we're focusing on this today is there are a number of different things happening globally where because of communication, situations have arisen that might not have existed in the first place. Here's a few examples. There is a chip shortage around the world. Now, not a potato crisp or a bag of chips if you're in the UK, but an electronic chip come under great shortage due to supply and demand issues. And the reason that's happened is due to supply and demand, due to supply chains, and of course the COVID pandemic has massively impacted on it. But because of the hype that's been caused by the communication, it's caused manufacturers to overbuy, it's caused big motor engineering companies and electronic manufacturers to grab hold of every supply they can, and therefore rocketing price and reducing the market flow that would ordinarily be there. Early in the pandemic, we saw the same thing happen with supermarkets, where we were told that there would be a shortage of supply. Of course it wasn't, yet many people still bought toilet rolls to fill spare rooms and pasta that would last a year. Most recently in the UK, we have a driver shortage for haulage firms and lorry drivers taking our fuel and our goods and services around the country. And as such, the media said it might be a fuel shortage. And guess what? You're right. Panic buying at the pumps, people filling up cans and cans of petrol, diesel and fuel, supermarkets going bare. Why? because the media is driving something that perhaps wouldn't be there. How do we just carry on our day-to-day life and routines? So what's a leadership hack? Well, if we think about how people respond to communication, if we have a perceived problem or a perceived threat that may not be true and communicate it early, we could reinforce behaviours that could actually make that problem become a reality much sooner And it may be of a problem that wouldn't have arrived had we rethought our communication strategy and approach. So the leadership lesson here is, if we think there may be a problem, be sure that there may be a problem before you communicate it. Have foundations, have evidence, because unintentional communication can set people down a rabbit hole and lead to challenge and adversity. 
Thank you for those that have raised this through our social media platforms with us this week so that we could bring it to the attention of our listeners. If you also have some stories or insights that you want us to hear, let's get in touch. In the meantime, let's get on with the show. Matt Phelan is the co-founder and CEO of the Happiness Index. He's also the author of Freedom to be Happy, the business case for happiness. Matt, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Thanks for inviting me on. Delighted you're here too. So tell us, how did you end up running and leading the Happiness Index and what is it? So uh, as with most of these good stories, complete accident. (laughs) Um, Well, I was, so when I was 25, I started a marketing agency and we used to have a saying that um, employees come first, not the customer. So we were the opposite. We didn't believe the customer came first. Um, and over a 10 year period, we delivered something like 33 quarters of growth. Um, and but I, I'm a data geek and I started to wonder whether that was true because it sounds good, doesn't it? Mm. If you look after your employees, um, your customers will be happy and the business will grow. But as a geek, I've got a very inquisitive mind and I wanted to find out if it was true. So we built uh, a piece of code to to correlate at the beginning, just just to understand the correlation. Is there a correlation between employee happiness and customer happiness? And and then our customers of our marketing agency started asking for the for, for the code. And we said, you can't have it. It's a rubbish, rubbish piece of code. You'd, uh, we'd be ashamed to show it to anyone. Um, but like most entrepreneurs, we saw uh, more and more phone calls came in. Um, so eventually we realized that there was probably a business here called the Happiness Index. And, and it went from being an internal tool to being um, a, a business entity in its own right. So as an organization, how might I use it? So you would use it, I would say, to start off with to visualize your culture, um, to figure out where you are. And once you know where you are, you can start to plot where you want to go. Um, so it's a, we, we say it's a, it's an upgrade on what, on employee engagement. Um, it does measure employee engagement, but also includes, um, employee happiness, which we think are subtly and importantly different. So how would you describe happiness, Matt? Somebody asked you kind of over a beer, what, what is happiness? How, how oh, would you respond? Yeah, uh, it's the, over the beer, because there's the technical scientific answer, isn't there? But the, I love your question, Steve, and this is why I'm sort of filling to try and answer it, <laughs> which is, I would say it, it's your your happiness of how you experience it is just a window into everything else, like your well-being, um, how you are in life. And it's just a it's a good I, I see it as a data point. I know that's a very geeky way of seeing happiness, but I think your your own happiness can be a way of understanding how the rest of your life is. That could be in your personal life. That could be in your career. That could be in your relationship. Mm. And your hesitance was because you were going down that kind of geeky data space right yeah <laughs> so tell us a bit about what's the flip side of that kind of emotional response then yeah so we um the reason i hesitated is because we collect this information in over 100 countries so i'm in the spreadsheets every day but what what i can share with you is like there's everyone's different right so my happiness is different to your happiness and so on and so on but there are huge trends that we have that are that are similar and also different. But if I give you the top four, um, which is, so we define happiness as what the heart needs. So to give the, to give the analogy, um, we, if you were thinking of a car, we say um, engagement is um, the sat nav. So it's like the direction. So it's the clear direction where you're going, what the route's going to be. Whereas um, happiness is that energy that you need to get there. 
Um, I used to say it's the petrol in the car, but it's I think it's electric vehicle week, Steve. <laughs> it is indeed, yeah. <laughs> and um, I, time, it's everything, mate. You know that. I, I have moved to electric. So I'm trying to find a, a new... So let's say it's the electric in the car. The sat-nav is the engagement and the, the happiness is the electric. It's that energy. But what those the top four are, psychological safety, positive relationships, freedom to take opportunities and feelings of acknowledgement. Mm. And are they consistent in all of the teams that you work with and the organizations that you work with? Do you see that those manifest themselves in positive scores? So um, relationships is always number one. Um, but what is number two changes per person, per company, per country, per region. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I know you have um, a lot of North American listeners, Steve. So I, I, I pulled out an example from the data for, for you. So if you had, if you were a Europe, European companies often lump together the United States of America and Canada, which we shouldn't uh, for many reasons. But but in our head, we see this kind of like geographical mass. Um, if you were working in, if you take all the American data and all the Canada data, um, in um, in uh, America, the, the second most important thing, and I'm going to add engagement now um, and happiness together, the second most important thing in America is actually an engagement uh, metric, which is uh, clear direction um in canada it's acknowledgement so you could look from over from europe you could look over the pond and think they're very similar um in terms of their culture and so on and so on but there's a clear difference every time we run that data i've got some views on why i think that is and feel free to jump in Stephen, why you think that might be but that's that's what we see in the data to a very clear difference so if you're a hr director that indicates that you need a different strategy um for the different locations so I think there's probably a few things that kick around there, isn't there? You have some cultural differences between Canada and, and the rest of the US, yeah. which could present itself in the results you get. But also, I would imagine that even within intra-countries and intra-regions, there are nuances that are also different, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, I don't want to get political, but I think um, in America, in the United States of America, your employment is very much tied to also things like your healthcare. Of course, yeah. So, if you think about that, if you think about I'm in London, if the happiness index failed and I lost my job, um, I, my family um, would still retain their health care. So acknowledgement is, can be higher. It's a bit like the Maslow hierarchy of needs. But if you know that if you were to lose your job, um, you would lose your health care. Clarity, clear clarity on what your role is is hyper important, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, so I would, you'd think it would be the same for everyone, but we're human beings, and and, and that un, those underlying elements change how we we are in the workforce. Mm, that's really fascinating, and I guess also organisations make assumptions about what makes people happy, right? Yes, every single day, <laughs> and, yeah. and we all do it consciously and subconsciously. So, what would be some of those assumptions, and how right or wrong are they? So, let me run a, a live case study for you in a real life um, multi. They're def they're definitely yeah they're European pan wide. Um, retailer um they um they were focused the hr team were folk said to us when they briefed us before they did their culture assessment that the number one priority is staff retention um which is a normal thing to hear yeah when we run when we ran their first cultural assessment and we um cross-referenced it with their financial performance data we found that the the managers of the stores that had um, the highest performing stores financially um, had been 
had been in the business the shortest amount of time. Fascinating, yeah. So the, the reason that is an important assumption is the assumption is retain staff, things will be better if we retain our staff. What they found is the newer managers had happier teams and were performing financially better. So this is where it's important to not make an assumption again, the second assumption. So the first assumption was staff retention was the most important thing. The second assumption, and then the next bit is where you can easily lump into assumptions again, which is, for example, you could think, okay, after five years, the employees get bored or lazy. Um, or you could make an assumption, actually, after five years, we've, we, we just left people alone and actually they need training. So maybe they need to call Steve Rush and think about how they can develop people over the entire employee experience. So <laughs> that's where data just gets rid of the assumptions because you could make so many assumptions on those two, two things we've discussed there, Steve. And I'm keen to get into that whole notion of how you take all of these data points and map that into something that is typically been described as something pink and fluffy happiness. It's an emotion, right? So how do you, how do you shift from yeah. taking an emotion yeah. and turning it into a business metric? Yeah, it's really hard for me to answer that because I'm so converted the other way and I deal with this every day, but I'm going to try, I'm going to go and try and take a step back. Um, so I think the first stumbling block and the first change in people's mind is a, is a business term called um, if you can measure it, you can manage it. You hear it a lot, don't you? You hear it a lot. I believe that to be wildly untrue. Um, and what I would th- change it for is if you, and, and I say this as a measurement company, if you can measure it, you can better understand it, mm. which is it's a subtle change, right, Steve? But I think we've gone down this road where we, we almost view people as robots and we think, oh, if we can measure it, we can manage it. But I think... And this is this is quite a big concept to put out there, but I think the entire idea of management is flawed. It's ironically made up too. We created management in the last hundred years. It didn't happen before that. Exactly, um, and it goes back. It's, it's the sort of Taylorism and, and the factory floor stuff, isn't it? Right. So I think trying to see data as better understand leads you to seeing data as helping you make better decisions. So what? If we go back to your original question, how is this helping? Um, and this is the second change that I would like to leave people. So the first is not to use data to manage, but to better understand. The second one is if we take um, a, a piece of data like revenue, generally if revenue goes up, it's good. And if it goes down, it's bad. Emotions are supposed to fluctuate. Mm. You're supp- it's normal for you to feel happier at one stage in the day and feel unhappier at the other. That's normal, right? So trying to artificially get people to be happy all the time is actually not a good strategy. So the second thing I want to leave your listeners with is to see emotional data more like a weather report. Yeah. And can you forecast it? You can certainly start to, we say today's emotions are an indicator of tomorrow's performance. And that's why we're called the happiness index, right? So the reason I think this is useful is that if you're a board and you're looking at this data, is giving you an indicator of what your future performance may look like. Mm. So they're subtle shifts, um, but I think once you start to do that, you start to realise that actually these are important business metrics. They're not the only business metric. They all have to work together. Just like you have revenue in your P&L, we now have companies as big as half a million employees that are measuring happiness in their board report. Yeah. So it's ch- times are changing, um, but it but it takes time to 
take people on that journey from the sort of tailorism that you say, like we've made up in the last hundred years through to seeing happiness as a really important business metric. Mm, I totally agree. And productivity is a sidekick for happiness. Happy people are more productive yep. than less happy people. You don't need data to see that. You can see that around you in any store, in any factory, in any office location. Happy people are more productive. Yeah. And one of the things that we plot, and I, we're doing this on on the modern version of radio, so I'm going to try and draw it in, in your head for you, is that happiness without engagement is unfocused. So we see this in a lot of charities where they have happy staff but not engaged. Yeah. Um, but we also see the flip, which is highly engaged and unhappy, which is you get this in a lot of organisations where they think they have a thriving culture when really what they have is a competitive culture. Um, which under which can show up some good metrics, but under the surface, lots of nasty little things are happening that's going to eventually hold back the growth. Um, so, yeah, if you imagine it as a four box quadrant, we want the top right box to be where people are happy and engaged is what we're trying to work towards. And you also, I know from the time that we've met before, you apply a lot of neuroscience behind mm. it. So this isn't just about data. Yeah. You know, we're talking about data and science and people skills yeah. that come into this. So what role does neuroscience play when we look at happiness? Neuroscience is massive for us because if we think, again, we've sort of like looked at the history of business and tailorism and, and so on and so on. If we look at the history of psychology, a lot of a lot of psychology is based on observation and I'm going to be sorry if people are eating their breakfast, but also dead brains. Uh, that's where we got a lot of our understanding of, of the body and how we work, ob- observing people in the workplace and also dissecting um, dead bodies, which sorry if you are eating your breakfast and I've really offended you. Or any other meal at any other time, of course, being a globally diverse podcast. (laughs) It's a really good point, isn't it? You should be allowed to be upset whilst eating your dinner as well. But um, I think what neuroscience, just from a technical perspective, is allow us to um, to, 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 to go under the hood and see what's happening in a body in real time. Um, So that's that's a huge leap forward. But before everyone turns off the podcast, um, the reason I love it so much is it it's let's say you're in let's keep with a car let's say you're in a car later and someone there's a road rage incident what neuroscience does is it helps you question why you acted in that way like why did that person make me feel angry or when I had my meeting with my boss why did I feel unsafe neuroscience is really just helping us understand the emotions that um we we divide it into four in how, how you instinctively feel how you emotionally feel how you rationally feel and how you feel on a reflective basis um which we think is really important businesses tend to be bad at understanding emotions and instinctive behavior um and focus on rational and reflective but i mm. think it goes back to that if you can measure it you can manage it quote it's easier to measure and manage rational and reflective beings but guess what, Steve? There's no human beings out there that are wholly that. We're we're all emotional and we're all instinctive. And personally, that's what I think makes us beautiful. Well, the emotion reaction comes first anyway. Yeah. From a neuroscience perspective, we'll have an emotional reaction, which we either then can rationalize or not rationalize. And that's where we hit that kind of fight, flight, freeze and appease moment. Yeah. And, and that's why we say from a neuroscience perspective, there's no such thing as too emotional. So if your boss made you angry, um, your your emotional response is is how you that makes you feel anger is just something you're feeling what you do with that anger is like 
the good or the bad thing. Because if you feel angry at your boss and then you punch them in the face, that's illegal, right? In most countries, yeah, I think the country yeah. where it's not. If there is, please tell me, Steve. Um, that's bad behavior, right? Punching some, punching your boss in the face is bad behavior, but it doesn't. But but it doesn't change the fact that you instinctively and emotionally felt like that. And that's why we see emotions like happiness as a data point, because if your boss makes you feel unsafe, it's it's important to step back and think, why does my boss make me feel unsafe? Maybe this is time to to get out of here or speak to someone else or, or change role. Um, but from a neuroscience perspective, telling someone they're too emotional is like telling a parent that they love their children too much. It's, it's a great analogy. Love it. So here's the thing. Can you ever be too happy? Yes, is yes is the answer, Steve. Um, Ooh, okay. To be happy all the time is is a, is a, is a mental um, health issue as 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 severe as being unhappy all the time, which people are often shocked when they hear that. Um, but it, our emotions are supposed to fluctuate, and the fluctuation is what is what is important. Um, if you were, um, and this is why I think this is where self-help, but this is kind of why I wrote my book, which is I self-help books are good to a certain degree. Right. But you, if you, if you have a chemical imbalance, which means you're unhappy all the time, um, you need to go and you need to go and get help, um, to get out of that. And it would be the same if you were happy all the time, that would be, there would be a condition there that you, that you would need help with. Um, we we talk a lot at the moment about incongruous. I can never say the word incongruous. Have I said it right, Steve? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, nailed it. Incongruous emotions. So an incongruous emotion could be your mother dies, um, but you feel happy. So you feel happy because she was in pain for five years, um, and you feel that she has had a release but you feel guilty that you feel happy. Mm. The emotion that you feel happy, you can't help how you are feeling in that moment. But what happens is you can then end up feeling bad. Your rational brain can tell you to feel bad because you think you should be unhappy because your mother's just died. So um, these are all complex subjects, but it's important to know that it will fluctuate. And the reason I bring up the incongruous bit, sometimes people end up on a downward spiral because they feel unhappy and they get annoyed that they're not happy, and it makes it worse. Yeah, at a certain event, but the revert, the other way can the other way can happen as well. So, so the answer to answer your question, yes, you you can be too happy, which I think does um, surprise a few people when they hear that. Yeah, it does, and and I guess the reason that that might surprise people is because it's easier to notice when people are less happy than when they are happy, right? Yeah, and I think we, we I think we need to bring up an elephant in the room on this one, Steve, which is let's do it. Um, toxic positivity. Oh, go on. If you, it, it's, it, we made this mistake when we first started the happiness index, which is as soon as we built that software in our old company, we made happiness a target. As in, we said we want our staff to be on average um, eight out of 10 um, or above happiness. What what I learned from doing that is it's a terrible idea and don't do it. Uh, first <laughs> learning. And the reason it's a terrible idea and don't do it is that if you saw someone in the office or down the pub and they looked unhappy, it's the equivalent of telling them to cheer up. Mm-hmm. If you tell someone who's unhappy to cheer up, the only thing that's ever going to happen is they're going to get unhappier. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Very true. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to that seeing it like a weather report. You can't tell the rain not to rain and the sun not to shine. It's just natural. This is what's happening. 
So all you can do if you see someone unhappy is to be there and try and understand um, what's driving that emotion. And if you can help, then great. But if you can't, your job, like like we've all learned, um, is there is to be there to listen. Um, and actually, just the process of listening can actually really help people. Um, but but you need to get permission before you go into fixed mode because I'm I think it's an entrepreneurship thing and it's well there's also gender differences in this um, element but I'm definitely somebody who likes to jump into fixing yeah um, before I've been given permission that actually does this person actually want me to help um, that's definitely one of my own developments as a, a leader that I've had to work on and in terms of getting balance over the last. 18 months, two years, where we've gone through this crazy world that we've been all experiencing. How has that kind of presented itself in terms of people's happiness over during and through the pandemic? So, oh, I'm going to use a, a word from, from, from that I learned in geography back in the day, which is it's been a kaleidoscope. Um, I've just been waiting to get yeah, that word in, really. I think it's the first really time anybody's used that word on our podcast. So congratulations, Well done. Thanks, <laughs> Steve. I'm going to send it to my mum so she's proud of me. But I think in reality, it's just been different. It's been different for everyone, but there's huge themes again. So similar to what I was saying about global emotions, some people are happier. For example, introverts, um, many introverts, um, introverts have have preferred uh, working from home um, because they don't have people like me walking around the office asking, asking them how they are. Of course, they get their energy internally, so they don't need to be surrounded by other people to get their energy and focus. Absolutely. Some people have really struggled. Um, I've really missed human connection myself. Um, that, that The relationships bit is definitely key, really important for me. Um, the, where we're seeing it in the where what we saw in the day. So and the top level, everyone was, the world was way unhappier in the last two years than it's ever been. Record lows of unhappiness, um, just, just to get that on record. Um, but where we've seen is um, we've seen f- people want to communicate times for the normal amount. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, which shows that the digital world is great, um, but it leaves it leaves you what we with what we call an emotional deficit. Um, so I think the the digital world will get. I don't want to get too much into hormones today, but I think um, the digital world really drives your dopamine, like that reward signal thing that you get from all the social instant gratification yeah i think we get that a lot from tech and that's not that's yeah. by accident the the mark zuckerbergs of the world know how to design platforms to do that for us um but there, there's a huge piece missing on connection there that um sitting around the fire having a chat all that sort of stuff you, you you can get bits of it from from the digital world but ultimately i do think there's a real world stuff that we need yeah i agree and given all the research and data points you get, you've gathered data from all over the world. Yeah. Has there been any pockets of happiness or sadness that spikes? So where's the kind of happiest place to live right now? And where would be the, the, the place that we might want to avoid? So this comes up a lot because so the Nordics always come out as the, as the happiest place. Um, but actually, I think if I if I'm really brutal with the analysis, I think all human beings all human beings i don't think there's a i don't think there's a happier country and a less happier country there are facts that do come into it that we can't ignore like war and famine of course yeah there is no doubt that you're in afghanistan at the moment um that it is it's going to be impacting how you feel but if we just take a, a a normal situation i think in reality there's there's measurement differences on it um, so I really encourage everyone 
to go back to what is important to you and your environment and what's around you because it is it, it, Denmark and so on always come out really high but guess what Steve I have to deal with the situation that I have in front of me which is what I what I always encourage people to do it's it's great to be inspired by other countries and other locations but I think it's more important to look at look at look internally and look around you in in your own vicinity otherwise you have you heard of that Roosevelt quote it's like comparison is the thief of joy mm, yeah and you can easily do that like when I went um when I went out to Copenhagen I loved going for a swim in the harbors that they have there um but I can't do that <laughs> <laughs> and here's the other thing that was really interesting bit of a data point to overlay on that mm. Denmark are the highest tax country in Europe mm-hmm. you pay more tax out of your earned income than in any other country in Europe and in fact I think in the northern hemisphere and, and I think we, I mean, we talk about that a lot. And we, we I talk about that with uh, Jens Nilsson, who's our representative in, in Denmark. There's a mindset shift. They don't see tax as the thing that's been stolen out of your back pocket after you've, you've done your work. Interesting, yeah. They see it as something that is contributing to society and good. They see it as good, which is a huge, we, we'd, we'd need a podcast just to get into the cultural. Oh, gosh, that's a whole nother show, right? Yeah, we'd be back to King John yeah. and the Magna Carta to understand that from a UK perspective. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, but maybe that's the, maybe that's the follow up. Steve, we'll do King King John and the Magna Carta and happiness. Yeah, and then we'd have to, of course, we'd have to involve the Romans who started all this thing. Totally, totally. Yeah. So you created a fantastic community, right? By the way, called Happiness and Humans Community. Yeah. And you always have this question that you like to pose, and it's what makes you happy. So I'm going to ask you the same question, Matt. So what makes you happy, Matt? Oh, thanks for asking me, Steve. Um, it, it's where I got the title for, the, for for my book, which is Freedom to be Happy. So freedom was in those top four that I mentioned earlier on happiness. But for me, it's by far the number one thing. Like for me, I, I see life as an adventure. I do. I'm not like I didn't come from a, a wealthy family or anything. So I do have to earn money to to pay the mortgage and stuff like that. Um, so I have that. I do have that side to me, but I can't work anywhere for a second if I don't have freedom to be myself. Um, and it's it's really high up in that perspective. So, but it's that's all parts of life. That's in my relationships with my friends, with my family, with my work colleagues. Like I need to know that I can leave at any point. <laughs> like <laughs> if I was told to come on this podcast, I would. It's very childish. I wouldn't have come on, but because you invited me. <laughs> I came on. If, I know it's a very subtle difference. It is. Um, yeah. And it's probably, I probably need some uh, therapy to work through it. But um, for me, it's freedom. Lovely. Awesome. And you, and, and you, I have to ask you. Oh, I knew you were <laughs> going to do that. Um, so I'm trying to just articulate this because I've not thought about it and I, and I should have done. So it's kind of schoolboy error. I, I think it's around environment for me. So having, happy and calm people around me makes me happy when there is anger and disruption and chaos that makes me really unhappy and I react emotionally in those environments differently are you would you say that you're do you sense can you feel that Steve like you know, oh hugely yeah. yeah so I can I can I can feel it even before it happens so I can sense in a room or in a an environment mm-hmm. mood shift and change very very quickly before it presents itself in the either physical or, or verbal way I think that's one of the most important um aspects of the COO role 
I think a lot of people, when they think about the COO in an organization, they think that that, that person is one of the most organized people in the business, which, which is also true. But I don't think you can have a COO that doesn't, that can't sense that because the COO is, is, has so many interactions yeah. with all the different teams. Well, I actually, I, I coined the phrase, my leadership barometer. Mm. Right. So that's kind of how it feels for me. Yeah. It's, 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 and you, you made a correlation with weather earlier with happiness, didn't you? Yeah. So it's ironic that even without having this conversation before or even connecting the dots, that's exactly what happens with me. I can, I get a sense, a barometer of mood shift, energy shift, culture shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I migrate towards it and can, and yeah. energize it and make it better. And I avoid it yeah. when it's not or tackle it to re-engineer it so that it is. And uh, I'm just going to get a bit of free consultancy from you for all your listeners quickly, Steve, one more question. <laughs> and, I, and then I will stop questioning. But do you, I, I get the sense that you, that you intuitively do that, right? But if you, it is an intuition. Yeah. If you get people that, that are lower, lower, that are not as, it, they're not as natural at doing that. Right. If you went into an organization and they were low on that skill, do you think you can coach and help people improve that? Or do you think you're just born with it? No, I totally believe you can coach it mm. and have done because it's around awareness. Right. So it starts, starts with yourself. And, you know, are you paying attention? Yeah. Are you noticing? And then secondly, it's around how do you notice? So right. what, are the, what are the clues, the cues, the, the things that are happening around us that make us open to those coincidences open to observing those behaviors so it's definitely a learned behavior yeah. it might be an intuition for me now but it probably wasn't 25 years ago mm. no that's that's brilliant Stephen. i yeah i just i'm thinking about lots lots of clients and stuff now where i know that that's yeah. a challenge they've got anyway back to me yeah it's my show <laughs> i'm um i'm gonna spin the lens now and we're gonna hack into your leadership mind oh. so you've led some really successful businesses and still do and therefore want to get your leadership spin on how you might do that and what's going to set you and others apart. Mm-hmm. So first thing I want to ask you is if you think about all of the experiences you had, what would be your top three leadership hacks, Matt? I think the number one is I, I learned from my granddad who I never met. So, so I, it's odd that I learned something from my granddad that I never met, but I, I learned it through stories passed on to me, um, which is this, this leadership lesson sounds a little bit, outdated because we're probably talking about it from the like 40s and 50s but the thing that I learned from my granddad is that as a leader your job is to um help someone um what I'm trying to think of the exact phrase but it's it's help someone improve um and I think when you look at it 40s and 50s it was more like a like my family were immigrants so it's like it's it's about like working your way up and all that kind of stuff. But in a modern world, I see it as, as, as personal development. I think if you look at all your employees and think, how do you help them improve? Ultimately that's going to help your organization improve as well. But the massive caveat that I would add to it for it to really work, you have to be able to have an honest conversation with someone when you think that improvement will we be better served outside your current organization yeah which is tough and you have to park your ego to do that and you have to have open lines of communication but if you've worked with someone for example five years and you both think you know what the best thing this person could do 
is go and work at this other organization. You have to be, you have to have a relationship where you could have that conversation with that person. So I think it's focusing on their improvement, but the caveat that you would be aware that sometimes that that improvement might not come from in your organization. Mm, yeah. So that's the, so we got we got number one. <laughs> um, number two, I think, is we mentioned it before, Steve, which is is listen. Uh, and again, the caveat is not jump into problem solving. Um, so it's it's really listening to your team, um, but waiting to be invited on on the fixed beat part. And I've learned I've learned that the hard way. Yeah, easy done though. Yeah, and I think that I think the third point, and this is what I think this is why your your podcast has done so amazing, Steve, is the power of storytelling. Because I'm a geek, right, and I deal in data, but unless you can turn that data into a story it just sits in a spreadsheet doesn't it just sits in a it does yeah it, it, just they're just numbers aren't they but until you start looking at trends and then once you turn them into trends you start telling them to stories that's how other human beings learn so when you're looking at your cultural data then taking out those little nuggets and stories that's how we we share it and we learn and we improve as an organization so i would to recap that i would say self-improvement um, for the team, really, really proper listening, um, and the third, the, the third point which I just mentioned. Love it. Really great advice. So the next part of the show we call it hack to attack. Ooh. So this is typically where something in your life or work has not worked out at all well, could have even been quite catastrophic, but it created a learning experience for you that you now use as a positive in your life and work. Mm. What would be your hack to attack, Matt? I think my hack to attack was where you were going, Steve, a bit with like listening to your um, listening to your own body. So I learned I learned through coaching. Um, my coach was a neuroscience coach. That l- the most important thing I could do was listen to my body. Mm. Um, and the reason that was po- important was um, when I first started, I was twenty five, and we did, and you know what it's like, Steve. We were talking off the record about how tough the last year has been for both our businesses but like you can hit these big moments can't you people resign you lose clients cash flow's tough what I used to do um to deal with tough experiences like when I came home I found it hard to switch off so I would drink red wine to sort of like get that nice hazy feel um but what I learned from listening to my body is that it would give me that hazy feel and it would push back the negative thoughts like, oh my God, we've lost this client or this has happened. Um, but then those thoughts would come back to me at three o'clock in the morning, um, which was a downward cycle because then I couldn't sleep. And then I was getting less sleep, which was negatively impacting my well-being. Um, so to hack to attack, now I look at my well-being as I know that if I'm going to turn up for a meeting or a podcast, my well-being and foundation to be myself needs to be there. Um, so I've learned that I just need to keep feeding that in. So that that's led me that led me to doing it a year off alcohol. Um, I came back drinking to, um, to for my brother stag do, which I felt like <laughs> obliged to him um, because I he drank on my stag do and so on and so on, and I wanted to be part of that part of that. But actually, I don't know if I'll drink again now. I've, I came back for that social event um, and I definitely think that I'm a better leader. And the other thing I've learned from it is that 
there are non-drinkers within the happiness index that that have gravitated to me towards me socially that's very interesting because in the media world drinking is part of the it is part of the world and that was my old world yeah actually it's it's like a diversity thing isn't it which is drinkers socially gravitated towards me um and my co-founders drink but actually as a diversity perspective the fact that i'm a non-drinker is actually quite useful so other people will come to me and say matt we're doing this event it's got drinking involved maybe we could do a different type of activity whereas i don't think they would have come to me if i hadn't like explained why i'd cut down on drinking and we'll avoid the rabbit hole that says also there's a chemical reaction that gives you an instant high when you drink alcohol but then it also impacts you negatively after the yeah. event so I, I would recommend to read alcohol explained um and it, it, I, for any level of drinker i wouldn't say i was someone who was a a, a a huge drinker but i was um someone who became aware that i look at it like i looked at it like a loan in the end which is i reckon i had one day up for two days down and i thought you know what this is like a high interest loan that i don't want to keep paying off the interest on yeah like a current account but that book alcohol explained especially if you're into your neuroscience and stuff it it explains why that high comes and and so on and i, I don't want to preach because I've many years of actually really enjoying drinking and, and lots of friends and family who still do do drink. But I would recommend people to read Alcohol Explained, whatever your level of drinking from problem drinker to one a month. Great stuff. Now, the very last thing we get to do is we get to give you a chance to do some time travel, bump into Matt oh. at 21. <laughs> and you can get to give him some advice, Matt. What would it be? Oh, I would say, um, and this is what I say to you you don't realize how much opportunity you've got. Um, and I would say go and work in other countries. Um, like right now, obviously we're in the middle of the pandemic where we're not, hopefully we're at the, the beginning of the end. But again, like maybe I'm saying this because our freedom's been locked down and stuff, but I think you can learn a lot from travel, right? But imagine how much you can learn by going and working in another country yeah and so i would have said like it's been good for me because i've become very ingrained in london so anything i need or speak to like my network in london is huge and london's a global city so i've benefited from that perspective but actually i if i was speaking to 21 year old matt i'd probably say go and work in shanghai for a couple of years yeah i didn't start working my professional career abroad until in my late 20s and then only really in the last kind of 10 or 15 years have I had the opportunity to travel the world and see and experience those. And you do get much of a richer experience and diversity of thinking and behaviors is, is really powerful, isn't it? Yeah. So that, yeah, that it would be as simple as that. So beyond today, if folk wanted to continue the conversation with you, stay connected with you, where's the best place for us to send them? Yeah. So um, I would reckon at the moment, um, we realized that moving from engagement to happiness for some can be scary. Um, so any company in the world of any size can go to the happinessindex.com and they can, uh, do a free trial for three months of our entire platform. Um, so that's it on a product perspective from a, um, a keeping in touch perspective, the, the happiness and humans community, you can find that on the happinessindex.com as well. But the, the, the test is, do you want to positively shape the future of work? If you are thinking, yes, that's what I want to do, Matt and Steve, then please join that community. It's people from all around the world. People pose questions, challenges. Um, but most importantly, people connect up. And uh, there's been people that have become friends, business partners. They've hired on there. So, 
yeah, please, please join the happiness and humans community. If you want to positively shape the future of work. And we'll put a little join here button on our show notes as well. So people can do that as soon as they started listening with us. Thanks, Dave. Matt, I love chatting with you. Uh, you bring a really great perspective to something that is an emotional subject and you have given us that business case. So thanks for being part of our community and thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Thanks, Matt. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush and I've been the Leadership Hacker.